like when I was student teaching and trying to get the class in together. Now, Mackenzie teaches fifth grade, and she's got some really good tools to get the class to pay attention. Um, but we're not going to do that. It's like you have to do hand signals and like things like that. It's Doug smiling. You, I know you really want to do that. But we're not going to do that this morning. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to be here this morning. For you all that don't know me, my name is Adam Stein. Uh, we're members here at Redstone, and we are so excited uh, that you were here today. If you're a visitor, we're excited. And if you're Mike and have been here since day one, we're excited. So we're excited to see you all. And, um, and I'm very honored and humbled to get to dig into God's word. And before we dive in, I just want to say a disclaimer. Um, if I remember correctly, last week, Jerry had two verses. The week before that, Sam had three. And the week before that, it was two or three. I have been given 10 verses. And I'm one of the most long-winded people in the church, just in natural conversation. So we're going to see what happens here. It's only 45 minutes, but I do see a small clock in the back. And Brandon said he was going to wave when it got close to time. So with that said, uh, let me just pray real quick, and, and then we'll dive in. God, we, we love you, and we worship you, and thank you for who you are. If it wasn't for you, all of this would be foolishness, as the Bible teaches us. Um, but you have raised from the dead, and therefore, uh, us coming together, us praying to you, us studying your word, it's a response to your grace, to your goodness, and it has purpose, because you have given us purpose in you. And I pray over myself, I pray that you would calm my nerves, I pray that you would help me to get out of the way, and that you would be... Your word that is taught this morning. And I pray for us as listeners and hearers of your word that you would open our ears and our hearts and our minds to be able to think and um, to be able to hear what it is you would say uh, through your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Awesome. So, um, yeah, typically I like to have really long introductions because I love to tell stories and make really funny applications and, and all this stuff. And I will just say this one thing, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but this past week, for a few people that hung out with me this week, I was rocking a mustache, just a mustache, and I have pretty dark facial hair, and even to the point that some, one time somebody asked me if I had dyed my mustache, um, and I said, no, this is all natural. And so I hung out with a couple people this week, and I was meeting with Caleb Sells on Friday, feeling really good about my mustache, and then he let me know that he is actually the mustache man. And uh, he said at work they call him the mustache man. And so I went home and shaved it off because I am not the mustache man and I don't want to cause a conflict between me and Caleb Sells. So if you see Caleb Sells, you'll know it's him because he's the mustache man. So um, anyways, with that said, um, the past couple of weeks we've been going through 1 Peter. And we've gone through the first chapter of 1 Peter. And uh, today we'll close out chapter 1. And we've seen through a couple different weeks as... Um, Peter gives us introductions through verses uh, 1 through 2, and, um, and then verses 3 through 12, actually including verses 1 through 12, we just get an awesome understanding of the gospel. Peter dives right into the gospel. He dives into what Christ has done. He dives into what that means for believers. But he also starts to talk to, about elect exiles and begins to understand that the, the people that he's writing to are going through tumultuous times and, and are exiled physically and spiritually. So there's this double content that's happening is the people that Peter, his original audience, were both um, emotion or spiritual exiles as Christians, but also if we look in history, they were going through physical exile and, and physical, as he refers to it, a dispersion and being sent out under the Roman rule. And so he's writing to people who are going through hard things. And so this book is meant to a reminder of the gospel, but it, it's built on the foundation of hope, of what hope is. And that's why last week, Jerry was saying, and he was talking about in verse 13, Peter can call them to say, we set our hope 
fully on the grace that will be revealed in Jesus Christ. So there's this anthem of hope throughout this book, but also honesty about hardships. He doesn't cover them up. He doesn't shy away from them. He says we have hope, and then he explains what is our hope, and then he begins to go on starting last week, this week, and on into the next couple chapters of what does that hope look like in the way we live our life? How does that affect us. And so we looked at verses basically 1 through 12, 1 through 13, what the gospel was and just dug into that. But then we starts to dig into, okay, so now how does this apply or flow into the way that I live my life from that foundation? If you were here for our Ephesians study, it's very similar to when we studied Ephesians. We had uh, the first three chapters were our position. And then after the foundation of the gospel, of who we are in Christ, Paul was able to then go to our practice and then how we stand or how we walk. And so Peter follows some of those similar themes. And so we will start just by reading the passage. Let me see if I figure this thing out. Oh, nice. All right, so our passage is 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 25. So if you have your Bible, um, if you have it on your phone, I'm also going to have it up here on the screen, and we're going to read. Um, so this is the Word of God. It says in verse 15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave, and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So we have quite a bit to dig through here. That is a powerful passage with a lot of great content. And I just want to say disclaimer up front. I do not have the time to get into the depths of everything that I would love to get into. And so I'd encourage you up front this week, you got a lot of studying to do. Because I'm just going to give us a really good introduction with a couple different... Like dig into a couple things, and I encourage you, please, in your own time, dig into these things. Dig into these topics. Read this passage and study it further. Because there's a lot of things that I just don't have the time to dig into the beauty of what Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is giving to us here. But one thing that we want to focus on, and I think as you read this passage, one thing that just comes off the page, the foundation, this, the, the directive, the, the power of this passage, is in verses 15 and 16. Right here off the beginning. He says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And then he repeats himself with a quote from the Old Testament and says, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if we were to have a title for this sermon, it would be, you shall be holy for I am holy. And I feel like as you read this passage, everything that follows flows from this point. And so we have to spend some time here. We've got to dig into this. What is Peter saying? Because our correct understanding of what Peter is saying here, it... it directly affects how we view the rest of not just this passage, but the entire book. And so this is very important to understand. What does Peter mean and how does that apply to us? 
But first we have to work, we have to get a good working definition of what does it mean to be holy. What is holy? It's a word we use in church a lot. It's a word that we see in scripture a lot. But what does it mean? According to Mr. Webster, holy is defined as exalted or worthy of complete devotion as one perfect in goodness or righteousness. And then if we apply that in a biblical context, holiness is often seen to be separated from the world or, or set apart. It means to be pure and to be undefiled. So to be set apart, to be pure, to be undefiled, to be righteous and perfectly good. And so that is what holiness, holy, means in God's word. And so as we look at that, as we read that passage and we begin to understand or look at what does holiness mean, then we need to dig into Peter's first two verses here. And so our very first truth right off the bat is truth number one. And I think this should be in your notes. It's God is holy. Very short, very simple, and yet very complex. God is holy. We can't move on to the rest of this passage unless we stop here for a minute. And it's easy to look at this passage and begin to dig into what Peter starts saying and go ahead and start thinking about our actions, our conduct. Because he says, you be holy. And so our very first thought is be like, how am I supposed to accomplish this? Okay, give me the list. What do I need to do? But in all reality, first, we need to camp out for a second and remember that his, his reasoning, his ground for this call is found in the truth that God is holy. Everything is built off of that foundation. Peter calling us and calling these original believers, calling them to be holy means nothing unless it's founded on the fact that God is holy. He's not just pulling this out of the air and saying, hey, go be holy. He's pulling this and saying, be holy because God is holy. So we have to look at God is holy. We've heard this. If you've grown up in church, we hear this and we think this, but it's really awesome to just sit and think about what does the Bible teach us about God's holiness. And we have to realize that Peter's reminder of God's holiness is a major theme throughout the entire Bible, and it's not new to him, and it's not new to his readers, his audience, especially his Jewish audience. Throughout the Bible, throughout God's word, God's holiness is echoed. It is a theme that you can study for years, starting in Genesis all the way, all the way to Revelation. And what we see here is Peter, in verse 16, he quotes almost word for word Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 through 45. He takes us back all the way to Leviticus, all the way to the giving of the law to tie in this theme, this anthem of God's holiness. And then Peter brings it all the way here near the end of our New Testament. So we see this tying of the Old Testament and the New Testament coming together. A truth that is above Old Testament and New Testament that is true throughout eternity that God is holy. And so we see right here Peter quotes, and this is the context of what Peter's quoting from. In Leviticus 40, uh, chapter 11, starting in verse 44, it says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. Why? For I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And obviously this is similar because Peter's not just coming up with this. and He's not paraphrasing. He's quoting directly. He says, this is written. And so he's taking a New Testament theme and New Testament believers, but he's pointing all the way back to Leviticus. And he's saying, God is holy. The Bible teaches us a lot about God's holiness. And I don't have the time to really dig into that as much as we would like to. But there's three quick things that we just need to understand about God's holiness before we can move on. Let's see here. The first thing is God alone is holy. 
There is no one like God in every aspect of his nature and who he is. But one of those things being his holiness. There is no one like God. He alone is holy. He defines the term. The term holy comes from him. He's the definition of it. He's the key, so to speak, and everything is followed after that. But he's the one that sets the mold for holiness. And, and if you look in Exodus 15, 11, or in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, and there's lots of other verses that I could pull into this, but these two specifically teach us, they say God alone is holy. In 1 Samuel, Hannah's prayer is she's devoting her son Samuel to the Lord and to the priesthood. She gives this prayer. In the beginning of her prayer, she says, you alone are holy. And so this woman, as she gives her son, she understands this truth that God's people, as she represents God's people at that time, they knew. And it was taught in God's word. It had been taught for years. God alone is holy. There is no one like God. You will not serve another God. And God is holy and he defines holiness. And there's no one even close to his holiness. But then another thing that we learn in, in God's word about his holiness is his holiness is unique. It's original. And we see this because Isaiah chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 4, even though they're found in two very different parts of our Bible, they are saying the same exact thing. In Isaiah, when he's lifted up through the Spirit, he has a vision of God in his temple. And he sees angel or seraphim and angelic beings worshiping God. And how do they worship? They say, holy, holy, holy. That is their worship. They are declaring what is true. They are just acknowledging what is unique and original about God. And then in Revelation chapter 4, looking at verse 8 in that whole passage, as John now by the Spirit sees a revelation, he also sees God in his, or in his temple on his throne. And what does he see? Almost the same exact thing. Angelic beings or seraphim are worshiping. And it says for eternity they worship without ceasing. And what do they say? Holy, holy, holy. So if we begin to realize what we see is Okay, if you, if you were in heaven right now, and, and as Isaiah saw, and as John saw, and if we were to look, what they are declaring and the way they worship is acknowledging God's holiness. So we have to understand that's a big deal. If that's what they're choosing to say, they could choose other words. There's other things that are true, but holiness is a core thing of what they're worshiping God for. And so his holiness is original in him, in him alone, as we looked at point number one, and it comes from him. It's unique to him. And another aspect of what the Bible teaches us about God's holiness is it's even in his title, even in his name, his description. And then they had a lot of names and we have a lot of names for how we worship God and the different ways that he, through his word, has, uh, has given his titles. But a very common one in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Isaiah, and this could be directly tied to the fact that because of Isaiah's vision of what he saw in chapter 6, as God was calling him into ministry, was these beings worshiping God and declaring his holiness, then what you see throughout the book of Isaiah is this anthem or this echoing of Holy One of Israel. Isaiah uses this countless times in his book, and I just pulled two references, but if you look in Isaiah and look for the title Holy One of Israel, it's there a lot because of what Isaiah was impacted, what he saw in the throne room and that vision that God gave him, it left him changed for the rest of his life, and he began to refer to God as the Holy One. Of Israel. So that's what we see in the Bible is God's holiness is it's his alone. It's unique to him. It comes from him. And it's also just his defining thing is what he can be titled as and known by is his holiness along with a lot of other things. But it's really cool to see that one way that in God's word that we see that he is called is the holy one 
of Israel, the Holy One of Israel. And so before we can dig into the rest of this passage, we just have to stop in verses 15 and 16 and see that God is holy. Holiness is a key attribute of God and His unchanging nature. Therefore, His holiness necessitates holiness for those who are called to be His people. So now we begin to see this shift. Now it starts to make sense of how it applies to people. The law given in the Old Testament expresses His holiness as well as the need for mankind to conform to God's holiness in order to have relationship with Him. And so this is what I'm talking about. This theme of God's holiness is not new to Peter. And as we just looked, it's throughout all of Scripture. And I just pulled some references, but you, there's a whole lot more that we could look at. God is holy in Genesis, all the way through Revelation, God is holy. And it never changes, it's unchanging. And what we also see in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 is this holiness that they are declaring. It says they never ceased, and it's been for eternity. So even before Scripture was written, if we can even comprehend, even before earth was created... God was holy, and his holiness was worshipped. And I think sometimes that's really hard to wrap our minds around, but God's holiness did not come once we came on the scene. His holiness predates everything that we can comprehend and think of. For eternity past and eternity future, God is holy, and his definition comes from him alone. And so now as we start to realize that, we transition a little bit, and we look at this Old Testament theme of God's holiness. So when God calls his people out, Starting with Abraham, but then specifically we look in Leviticus. He calls his people out from Egypt. He pulls them in. What did we talk about earlier? The definition of holiness. He sets them apart. And he pulls them away from the world and away from sin. And he takes them out and he calls them to himself. And he gives them a law, a way to relate with him. And at first it's like, why would he give all these rules and regulations? Because we have to understand he's holy. He sets the bar. And he's trying to help us understand and them understand. If you're going to be my people, God's people need to be holy people. You can't relate with a holy God unless you're holy. You can't be defined as God's people unless you're defined as holy. So he starts to pull and starts to draw them and gives them a law to follow. Why? Because he says it in Leviticus chapter 11. You shall be holy. Your actions, your thoughts, your words, who you are, you need to be holy. Why? Because I'm holy and I'm pulling a people. I'm making a people for myself, but I can't make a people for myself unless those people are holy. And then we also look, this is a restoration of the fall of mankind that started all the way in Genesis 3. God is restoring fallen man back to himself. But that gap of sin, that distance between our holiness and his holiness has got to be dealt with. So the law helps us understand our necessity for holiness to be in relation with God. But as New Testament believers, we also realize this law points to Jesus. This law points to the New Testament of how this thing really comes to fruition. And so Peter uses these truths as his foundation for the remainder of our passage. And that's why we spent so much time in just two verses. This is the foundation for where we're headed and for where Peter's headed. Not just for this chapter, but you'll see this theme continued throughout the book. And that leads us right on in to our next truth, which is we are now made holy. Guys, we haven't even gotten past verse 16 yet. Because in verse 16 and verse 15, two truths, they're so key. Is one, God is holy. He says that in verse 15 and 16, you shall be holy. Why? Because I am holy, because God is holy. But you also read that and you see, but as he who calls you is holy, now this is our part, God's people, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy. So again, this theme of holiness now starts to apply to, to God's people. 
We looked at the reasoning. Why? Because God is holy. And what does that mean? His people shall be holy to be his people. We looked at the Old Testament. We see that starting in Leviticus, starting even prior to that. God's holiness necessitates his people to be holy people. And then you think, okay, well, now we're in the New Testament. How does that apply to us? Peter doesn't get away from this Old Testament truth. It still applies. He says, you, New Testament believers, shall be holy. Why? Because God is holy. That, the truth is the same. It hasn't changed from Old Testament to the New Testament. We are now made holy. But this is where the key aspect is and why I worded it the way I did. Is because we are now made holy or we are being made holy. It gives us this understanding of well, what's making us holy. And why, why now or we are now made holy. What does that mean? So as we read this call to action, we can become extremely overwhelmed. And I don't know about you, but I can read this really quick, read this passage and have in my lifetime and say, okay, what's my rules to follow? And then when it says, you be holy, and I'm like, oh my gosh. Because I look at my life and I'm like, I'm, I'm not holy. And I'm overwhelmed. God is so far removed from me. And as we just looked, God is holy. And we just looked at a couple passages, but they just begin to show us all these other passages of God's holiness. We can't even fathom how holy he is. So as I look at his holiness, I'm reminded of what Isaiah said. If you look in Isaiah 6 and read that out, look at his response. He falls before the Lord and he said, I'm undone. Because I'm an unclean man of an unclean people. So he realizes two truths. One, God is holy and I am not. He says, I am not holy. I am not pure. And so I can be overwhelmed and I'm sure you can too as you look at this and it says, God is holy. Whoa. I stand in magnitude of this truth. And then Peter says, and as he quotes the Old Testament, you be holy. And so we move to that. And it's like, how? I'm not holy. It's very overwhelming. And a lot of times our first reaction is to just run from it. To say, I'll, I can't. There's no way. I'll wing it. I'll do my best. Or our other response is, okay, I'll do my best. God, I want to honor you. So I'm just going to muscle it up and do the best I can to be as holy as I can. But knowing the whole time in the back of our mind, we'll never hit the mark. So this creates some really bad cycles between our relationship with us and God. But as you read this, you have to read it in context. And what I want to remind you is when you read scripture, one of the most important things we do is we read in context. We read in context of the chapter. We read in context of the book. And we read that book in context of the whole Bible. You can't pull a verse. You can't pull a book out and not tie it in to what is the theme the story, the meta-narrative, the overarching story, how does this fit in there? Because if you pull something out and you're like, oh, this makes a lot of sense, but it goes against, or the way that you understood it goes against the rest of what Scripture teaches, well, then your understanding of what this passage is saying must be erred, and you have to reconcile that. How does this fit? And so don't read, you shall be holy, for I am holy, out of context, because that's really unhealthy. You can't pull that verse and say, okay, see, I told you, you need to go live a holy life because God is holy, unless you read it in context. Not just in Peter, but the entire Bible. We understand right here in chapter 1, we just talked about it. Peter just spent the first 12 verses explaining what Sam talked about a few weeks ago. God causing us to be born again. And therefore, him making us holy. So who are we to take this passage? And when Peter says, off of the foundation of what he just spent the first half of the chapter talking about. And then says, okay, you be holy for God is holy. Who are we to run directly away from the gospel foundation and go to make our own path and to get overwhelmed? I'm not holy. How am I supposed to be holy? What are we going to do when we're running around in circles? And, and Peter's not building this. He didn't start with you be holy. He started with the gospel. 
1 Peter starts the first 12 verses. He says, he's caused you to be born again. And you say, well, I'm really bad. I'm very not holy. Yes, of course. That's why Peter said you had to be born again. It necessitates being born again. Our unholiness is so bad, we have to be reborn spiritually. But then we are reborn. And we are a new creation in Christ. And guys, you can't move on to this, okay, I've got to be holy or act holy. You need to understand that you are holy. Not by merit and not because of the way you're born, but because of your rebirth through the power of the blood of Christ, we are made holy. Look at what Peter says. And I don't have time to go to the exact verses, but we just read through those first 12, 13 verses. He talks about us being born again. He talks about our living hope. He says we have an imperishable inheritance. He says that we have a guarded salvation. And so you couldn't have an imperishable inheritance with God. You couldn't have a guarded, protected salvation and relationship with God unless it already pre-existed on the fact that you were holy. Does that make sense? Because of God's holiness, you can't have this, this uh, living hope or this imperishable inheritance unless you were first made holy. Because as we look through the Old Testament, it necessitates God's people to be holy. So when Peter says, hey, you have a salvation, you have an imperishable inheritance, an inheritance in a familial language of being in relationship with God. But he's saying that knowing that that's coming from a foundation of you have been declared holy. And so now these things are true because we're holy in Christ. And if you don't like the way Peter puts it, well, let's look at what Paul says. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 through 22, it's a little bit of reading, but look at this. We just studied Ephesians, so this should still be fresh in our mind. Paul says, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you or peace to those who were near. For through him, through Jesus, we both, Gentiles and Jews, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together, look at this grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you, Jews and Gentiles, God's people, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so Paul's saying, because of the work of Christ, and Peter's saying, because of the gospel, this foundation is necessary for, for us to go on to that next step of you be holy. It's necessary. Paul says, you are being built into a holy temple. Well, how could you be built into a holy temple if you were not a holy people? And how could he say that you're being built together into a dwelling place for holy God? We call it by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The word's right there. Holy Spirit could not dwell in unholy man. So something's got to happen. And that's the importance of the gospel. That's what Christ has done and what he's brought us into is we are now made holy. And sometimes when we read this, we're overwhelmed and we don't accept it. But my reminder is to you is when has God ever not come through on his promises? Who are you to sit there and say, I don't believe you? God has never failed. He's never declared a truth and it not come to pass. So why would it be different now? In the gospel, we can read this verse as both a command and a declaration at the same time. Yes, he's commanding you to be holy. Yes, there is a response. And we're going to talk about that in a second of action. He's commanding you respond by being holy. But at the same time, built on the foundations of the gospel, this is also a declaration. You are holy. And because when you look at the wording, you shall be holy, there's an, there is an understanding of you, you need to be holy or go act holy, go be holy. 
But there's this also this declaration of you shall be, you will be, I'm going to come through on my promise. You will be a holy people. There's an emphasis on that word caused us to be born again. This is God's work. It's not our work. And he does not fail. He doesn't start something and then not finish it. If he says, I'm going to cause you to be born again, to be a new people, to be a holy people, then who are we to say, I don't know if you're going to be able to come through on that because I look at myself and I see my weaknesses. We got to step back and say, I guess we admit when we make mistakes. Yes, we admit in the areas and we take them back to him. But why? Because we go to the cross and we plead the blood. We are now made holy. And yes, we're still slipping and we're still messing up. And there will be a day that we will be glorified with Christ. And that holiness will be permanent with him because of his holiness. But we can't respond to this call unless we also understand that it's at the same time a declaration. It seems impossible that we can make such a claim. Especially after looking at God's holiness. How could we? How could we say that we are holy? However, a theme of holiness throughout scripture is the things that God separates to himself. They become holy. And I don't have time to dig into it, but Exodus chapter 29, verse 37. We see God telling his people how to start making things holy or sanctified for, for worship of him. So he looks at things, instructions, just chapter after chapter of instructions of the temple, of worship, of the priest, of their clothes, how they're supposed to take baths, what they're supposed to anoint things in, how the people are to be made holy. Why? All of it is helping us understand God's holiness requires these steps. But a really cool thing is God can take undefiled things. Or I'm sorry, he can take defiled things, he can take unholy things, and when he sets them apart for him, they become holy. This is not just true in the New Testament. We see this in Exodus 29. Holiness is transmitted to the priest's garments by the blood of rams. They would take rams, they would kill them, and then the blood, they would take it and put it, and it's just really interesting, they would put on the, the right earlobe of the priest, on the right fingertip, on the right toe, they would take blood and sprinkle it on certain things and on people and you're like that's kind of gross why it's all pointing to the fact that when God takes something and pulls it to himself and sets it apart it is now made holy so yes sometimes we think of it the other way and say well unholy things can make holy things not holy if that makes sense so basically undefiled things can defile or defiled things can mess up clean things but at the same time through the power of God through his holiness Undef or defiled things can now be made clean. We see that theme in the Old Testament and this blood, this sprinkling of blood on the garments of the priest. We look at Exodus chapter 30. Holiness is transferred to items. These items, these utensils and these tools in the tabernacle and in the temple, they were made holy because of these instructions. God set them apart. Ezekiel 44, it says these garments could transmit holiness. And God tells Ezekiel, hey, when the priests come out and their garments, which have now been made holy because they've been separated to God, he said, when you take them off, don't go, don't go back into the people and back out into the world. Leave those garments in the temple. He said, change back into your other garments. Why? He said, because your holiness can be transmitted. He says, unless your holiness goes out. Does that make sense? So he's saying holy things can make unholy things holy. And if these truths are true, then how much more does the blood of Christ, when applied to us, and not just on our right earlobe or our fingertip or our toes, but when the blood of Christ spiritually is applied to our heart, how permanent and how pure is that holiness that we have been declared through the power of the blood of Christ? Through the pure blood of Jesus Christ, we have been made holy. If you look back at 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 2. And I don't have it up here, but at verse 2 he says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and look at this, and for sprinkling 
with his blood. This is a reference back to the sprinkling of blood in the Old Testament. But now Peter's saying, this has come through, or this has come true through Jesus. And you're like, Adam, you spent a lot of time on our first verse, our first two verses. Because, guys, the whole thing is built, it's predicated off of this. God is holy. And yes, we respond and realize we are not holy. But Jesus is, Jesus was, Jesus always will be. It says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus has fulfilled the law. He said, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill it. Why? Because he's saying, only I, I'm the only person who could walk through this life perfectly and therefore be holy. So the Holy One, when he sacrifices himself, his blood is holy. It's permanently holy. There's no more blood needed to be sprinkled. That's the problem of the Old Testament. They had to keep doing these things. But this blood's applied. There's no more, there's no reapplying. It's permanent because I truly am pure. And he says that, Jesus says that in Matthew 5. He exemplified his perfect holiness, his ability to declare us holy by his sacrifice. And then you can look, and this is one of those things I would love to dig in more. But for time's sake, I want you to go dig into it more on your own. But we look at his holiness, we realize that we look at God's holiness, we realize the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1 as Jesus sends, he says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit to come and dwell within you, to come and live inside of you. So now you get this understanding that not only has he made us and declared us holy, but now the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us to keep making us holy. We call it sanctification. He's working on us. And that's something you'll just have to go spend a lot more time to look into. But just think about it for a second. How could the Holy Spirit, part of the Trinity of a holy God, come and dwell within an unholy people? Because of the purity of the holy blood that was applied and made us holy. And so we really need to think about that. And so just as Paul said, the Holy Spirit is living within us, sanctifying us and making us holy before God. A holy temple, a dwelling place. And just a side note, when he says that um, in verse 19, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. The word saints literally just means holy people. The word saint means holy people. And so that's really powerful to think about when Paul's writing and says, you were fellow citizens, you were part of a holy people. And so this holy, or the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us, makes us holy before God, a holy temple, a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. And then it looks, if you look later in the, in the book, Peter can boldly declare in chapter 2, verses 5, in chapter 2, verses 9, look at how he describes God's people. He says, you are a holy people. You are a holy priesthood. Why? Because you've been made holy. So Peter understands this truth and it leads to the way that he refers to God's people. He refers to them twice as holy people. Now he's using this term to define God's people. We use it to define God and now Peter's using it boldly. Not arrogantly, but because of the grace of Jesus and because of his blood, he can say, you are now a holy people. I spent a lot of time there because that is where everything hinges off of this part. And so we have to remember that we are declared holy and we're called to be holy. So he says, you shall be holy. He says, you respond in holiness. But you also need to remember this is a declaration of your standing, of your position. If you have placed your faith in Christ, if you have placed your faith in his blood, in his finished work, then that blood and that purity and that holiness has been applied to you. You've been born again. That born again is you are now a new person in Christ. You are now a new creation. And you're still walking, right? We're still being sanctified. But now the Holy Spirit's living within us. And so we don't boldly, or I mean, we don't arrogantly say like, well, look, I'm a really holy person, right? Throughout this life, we still make mistakes. 
But we humbly but boldly cling to the fact that, yes, I'm still slipping sometimes and I'm, I'm, still, I'm still working or Jesus is still working on me. But we stand on that promise when God says you will be holy. We have to hold on fast to that truth. As God's people, we're a holy people because of the blood of Christ. And it points to the power of the gospel. And so off this foundation of the gospel, you're thinking to yourself, in however long, half my time or more than half my time, we've looked at um, two verses. And so now we're going to have to quickly go through the rest. But those, it's where everything's built. We have to stay there. Truth number three, or I'm sorry, in mine I have it's truth three. But you can also look at it as truth 2A because it's a subpoint of now that we are holy. It's 2A because what flows out of that? And so what Peter does is he calls us into holy relationship with God. And if you look at verse 17, this is how he responds. After he said, you shall be holy, for I am holy, this is what he says next. He says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And so Peter goes on to start to now look. He's looked at our foundation, our position, the holiness we have received because of the blood of Christ. And now he starts to look at our action, starts to look at our walk, our practice. And he says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Conduct yourselves with fear. Peter turns from God's nature and our position, looks towards conduct and to walk in fear of the Lord. And I don't have... A lot of time, here's another one of those things. I told you at the beginning, we have several things that you need to take on your own time and dig into. Fear of the Lord. That is, a, that is a whole lesson in and of itself. And I wish I had time to dig into that. Because at first we see that and we want to respond kind of in a bad feeling because the word fear has a lot of negative connotation. But I encourage you in your own time, look into this. Fear of the Lord is throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. And there's some really great values to it. But I will say this. The fear of the Lord in Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, all throughout Proverbs, it talks about fear of the Lord and wisdom and knowledge. We see that this fear of the Lord is inseparable from knowledge of him. They are married together. To know God is to fear God. To fear God is to know God. So there's this knowing in a relationship. So somehow this relationship also includes a fear of the Lord. But we stand in awe of his great holiness as well as his immeasurable love and his grace. The call to appropriate conduct can quickly turn into, I don't like that verse. We can say, conduct yourselves with fear. You know what? I don't like the way it words that. I'm giving up. I'm not reading First Peter. I don't want to be in fear. This is supposed to be my father, right? This is supposed to be a loving relationship. We can quickly respond with a negative feeling and just throw it out and say, okay, either I'm going to skip over that verse. I don't understand it. Just give up on it. What did we talk about earlier? We have to read in context. And I don't have time to explain all of what this looks like, but I do have time to look at what, look at the context that Peter writes this into. Context is essential. He says, fear the Lord, right here in verse 17. But he puts this into a whole passage that he spent ample time talking about the familial relationship between God and his people. It's a family. He refers to him, or refers to this as a family understanding. So when, God, where when Peter comes in and says, fear the Lord, he doesn't do it as an isolated command or an isolated response. He does it in the context of family. And that's really important. First Peter, look at chapter 1 and verses 2, verses 3, verses 17. He refers to God as our Father. 
In verse 4, he talks about inheritance. And inheritance was part of, it's a familial language. You inherit what? You inherit things from your father, from your, from your family. They're inherited. So that's fa family language. You're born again, verses 3, verses 23. Now you're a child being born into what? Born into a family. And then in verse 15, he says, as obedient children. So Peter has no problem with, on one hand, saying, fear the Lord, and at the same time, spending so much time talking about this family that's full of love and grace and the mercy of God coming together. As children in relationship with our Father, we walk in a lifestyle that fears, that knows, and loves our loving and almighty Father. So we honor him with holy conduct. Often scripture says, or says, for example, we sin against God. A lot of times we'll look, even when David prayed, he says, against you alone have I sinned. But he had, he had sinned against other people. So what he's saying, because in, in David's example, he had sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against her husband. He sinned against his family. And we see he sinned against Israel. But he says, against you I have sinned. Why is that? This relationship between our father and his people. Our sin is not just against other people. And if, if our sin is not just against other people, you flip the other side of that coin, our holy conduct is not just with other people. What we do may be between us and another person. There's also this vertical relationship that is between us and God. So yes, when we sin, we sin against our Father. But when we walk in response and we walk in holiness and we choose to walk in these things that he's commanded us to, it's also towards our Father. And so there's this relationship aspect. And so we honor him with our holy conduct because we are children and because we're built on this foundation of what we just spent time talking about. And we could, I could spend a lot of time talking about, well, what are applications? I encourage you to think about that. What are ways in your life that you can honor God, your father, in this familial relationship to fear him, to love him, and to respond in a lifestyle that honors him in your holy conduct? Not just in relationships around you, even though your interactions may be with other people, but you're giving those interactions to the Lord and honoring him in your life. And so the first thing that Peter does, his first action, his first conduct that he calls us to is between our relationship between us and God. So it says, you shall be holy. And from this foundation of you are holy in Christ, the first thing is this holiness produces is a restored relationship between you and God. A holy relationship between you and God. Sin destroyed that relationship the blood of Christ has restored it. And so Peter jumps straight. Your first actions, he basically summarizes the first half of the law, the first half of the Ten Commandments. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and mind. Peter's echoing the same thing that Jesus says. He says, okay, you were now made holy, so you need to be holy. How do you need to be holy? In relationship with God. In all of your conduct, do it as if you're doing it unto the Lord and honor him. And I don't have the time, but each one of you, we can all be thinking and praying about how do I walk? What are applications in my life that I can be holy in my conduct and my thoughts and my words between me and the Lord? Things that honor him as a worship to the Father in a family. Here's what's really powerful about Peter. Is he gives us these truths and then he gives us a command. And then he turns right around. He spent not even a full sentence, just a, a sub part of a sentence, makes one clause and says... He says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And then in verse 18 through 21, he does what? He repeats himself again. He does different wording, but what does he do? He says, knowing that you were ransomed in verse 18. This is what I, the other part of this, because I said, God calls us into holy relationship with God. That's our conduct. We respond with our lives and our actions. 
but he grounds it again. He can't get away from it. He said, because God is holy, you are holy. And this is how it should look. You need to have holy conduct with your father, restored relationship with him. And then he says, and if I haven't already convinced you enough, I just spent one part of one sentence giving you one call to be holy in your relationship with God and your conduct with him, love him and fear him in a relationship. And now let me give you three more entire verses on why. He says, let me repeat the gospel again. In case you didn't get it, let me repeat the gospel again. I'll spend a half of one verse calling you to action. I'll spend three more verses giving you the reason, giving the reason, giving you your foundation. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from, from your forefathers, not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ. Peter's echoing it again. He says, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown. And then in verse 21, it says, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter can't get away from it. He causes us to realize that it's only through the power of the gospel that we have a holy and restored relationship with God our Father. And thus giving us the ability and the motivation to walk in this restored vertical relationship. So the command given in verse 17 to fear the Lord in your conduct to in this family relationship with him as father. He says this is how you need to act. And then I'm going to give you three more verses on why. I'm going to give you the gospel again. Just in case. It's almost as if Peter understands us. He says, just in case you're quick to forget the gospel and turn it into a works-based relationship, let me remind you again, this is the gospel. Look, look at all these, this beautiful language that Peter gives of who we are, what Christ has done. And just to say, just to note, he finishes it with, so. So that, why? Why was all this done? So that your faith and your hope are in God. It comes back to that relationship, that family that we're talking about. Christ, God has done all of this so that your faith and hope will be restored back to a holy relationship between you and your Father, your Creator. And like I said, there's a lot here. We've got to keep moving. But this is really powerful to think about. So, we are holy. Where God is holy, we are holy. We're called to be holy. And His first call is to be made holy in relationship with God your Father. And then He gives three more verses to kind of come under that and give you a strong foundation so that just in case you're tempted to forget the gospel for a second, he gives you three more verses on what the gospel has done and who we are in Christ. And so then we look at, um, yes, truth 2B. So I could say truth 4, but we call it truth 2B because it still flows from truth 2. Truth 2 is we are now made holy in Christ. And so the first part of that is we're made holy in Christ and our restored relationship, our holy relationship with God. But now we're made holy in Christ. And then he looks at these horizontal relationships. So Peter gives us the gospel and then he gives us two commands. One, be holy in your relationship with God. Walk in fear in your conduct with him. And then number two, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. In verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth... Love one another. So Peter's second call to action, his second command is love others. His first was be in right relationship with God. Respond to who you are in your position because of the blood and right relationship, restore relationship, this vertical relationship between you and your father. But then he says, now look around and there's this restored relationship between us and one another. So he said, love one another earnestly. The gospel is inseparable 
from our practice. In addition to walking in right, right relationship with God, we are also called by Peter to love one another. And specifically here, now he's going to get into it in chapter 2, but specifically right here he's talking about relationship with other believers. And later in chapter 2 he'll talk about our relationship with non-believers, but right here he's saying you are the church, you are the bride. There is a restored relationship between you and your brothers and sisters. It's a family language. He doesn't get away from that. You are family because of the blood of Christ is in all of you. So love one another. There is a restored relationship horizontally between us and our brothers and sisters in Christ because we are now made holy. We are made holy in our relationships. And not because of us, but because of the blood. Our horizontal relationships have been restored. Peter specifically calls us here to love other brothers and sisters. And again, I don't have time, but if you look at John 13, 34, Jesus commands to love one another to the disciples. John 15, 12, love one another. 1 John 4, 7 through 8, John says, let us love one another. These are, these are passages talking about believers loving believers. There's plenty of other passages that talk about how we love the world, but right now the foundation is love other believers. We're in relationship with one another because we have the same father. We've all been bought and born into the same family. And let us love one another. So Peter goes to this and he says, from a pure heart, with earnestly, with sincerity, not just, not just by face value, don't let it be hypocritical, let it be true love. And yes, sometimes in the church, we frustrate each other to no end. But at the end of the day, let there, let there not be things to divide us. We're family and it's built on the blood of Christ. Let us seek to find unity. Let us work to restore relationships. Let us fight to forgive and to repent. Let us walk in humility, all understanding that our holiness is not of ourselves. It's all made of God. We all have mistakes. We all have failures. So let us forgive. Let us be quick to forgive, quick to repent, quick to restore. Peter says, love one another. I don't have time to think about it, but in your life and in my life, how can we respond? What are applications in our lives that we can love one another as the church? And then in chapter two, we'll look more into how to love the world. But right now, let's think about how can I love my brothers and sisters in Christ? How can I pray for them? How can I check in on them physically, spiritually, emotionally? We're a family. God is our father. We've been made a family through the blood of Christ. And as my dad used to say, you're family, so act like it. So take that as far as you want it. But we are family, so let us, let us act like it. Let's respond from a foundation of holiness, not our own strength, but because of the blood, we are called to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that restores this relationship between us and man. It's a holy relationship because of the blood. And again, the gospel is inseparable from our practice. Peter can't get away from it. It causes us. So he calls us into holy relationship with, our, uh, with other people. And again, here comes a few more verses of the gospel. It, it, Peter just keeps echoing. He reminds us again of the same message he's been echoing all along. We are holy through the blood of Jesus. And I wish I had the time to camp out here. Because Peter is saying, hey, go love one another earnestly. Okay, here's our second command. He didn't even spend a whole verse on it again. He just says, love one another. And then he says, oh, and here's a few more verses of why. Here's the gospel. In case you're tempted to forget, I want you to love your father in a fearful and a, and a wonderful and a loving relationship. And then three verses on the gospel. Also, I want you to love and be, God wants you to love one another earnestly. And in case you forget, here's the gospel. Here's the motivation. Here's the ability. 
Here's where we stand from. And he doesn't leave it alone. Why? Because we can't. We don't graduate from it. We don't leave it. Our life is founded on this truth. We are made holy in the gospel. So we stand in the gospel. The gospel calls us to right relationship with God. It calls us to holy relationship with others. And we stay in who we are because of the blood of Christ. And I wish I had the time. He talks about your souls are now made pure. Your black, dirty souls. Your hearts. We all know what they look like deep inside. They're not good. But the blood of Christ comes in. And it brings light. And it brings hope and restoration. And it was so bad he had to die on a cross. But he did it. And the work is finished. And if you've placed your faith in his work and his blood, your soul has been purified. You are now made holy. So don't forget it. He said, love one another. Why? Because you're made holy in the blood. Not because you're great, your strength is great. Because you're now made pure in the blood of Jesus. This pure heart, this pure soul. You've been born again. And if you add any questions about that, the seed that caused you to be born again, it doesn't die. So the things that gives you life, they'll never die. So that life will continue to keep being given. Then if that wasn't enough, it's through the living and abiding word of God. And that's never going to die either. And then he quotes this beautiful passage in Isaiah. And he gives us all these things in life that wither away. All these things around us. Basically, Isaiah is saying, everything around you is going to fall away. But the word, of the, uh, the word of God remains forever. It stands forever. And Peter's using that to defend his argument because he's saying that the word of God stands forever. And he's saying this good news is the word that was preached to you. What's the good news? The gospel. John 1 says that Jesus is the word wrapped in flesh. And so this word that has caused you to be born again, this word that has caused you to be pure, this gospel has caused you to be holy, it will never finish. It will never die. And so you, if you ever have doubts about when the end of the road comes, well, what happens if he finishes? What happens if he stops? What happens if he's not there to make me holy? What happens if there's not enough? That'll never happen. And he's using this passage in Isaiah to defend his argument that says you are made holy eternally in the blood because it's an imperishable seed that will never die and it continues to give life and life more abundantly in Jesus' words. And this is the good news that was preached to you. That this good news remains forever. Why? Because Jesus remains forever. I can't help but get excited about that. Because it's not a one and done. And then I have to try to figure it out after that. He did the work and he's doing the work. And he will forever do the work. We stand in the gospel. And anything that Peter says after this for the rest of the book. And anything that scripture teaches us about our conduct. Because that's important. We respond in our life. We are called to be holy. And as my dad says, we, we're called to act like it. You're part of a family. And in the areas that we mess up, in the areas that we slip, and there's a lot of passages in the New Testament that call us to walk this thing out. When you don't add up, and when you make a mistake, you go back to here, and you stand in the gospel, you repent, you take it back to the cross, and you keep walking, because the Holy Spirit is living within you. Don't ever run from this. Don't ever flee from this. We don't give up. We keep getting back up, not of our own strength, but because of the Holy Spirit living within us. Because of the blood, we take it back to him. And so as we close out, I made this really beautiful diagram. This is just a recap of what we talked about. This is how I took it in my notes, and I wanted to share it with you. This is the way my mind was working. Verse 15 and 16. You shall be holy, for I am holy. And from that holiness... Peter gives us two commands, 
Two calls. On the left side, he says, conduct yourself with fear. And that was verse 17. He says, this is how you're to act in your relationship with God. Because you're holy, act like it in your relationship with God. And then he comes under it and gives it support. Verses 18 through 21, he says, because why? Knowing that you are ransomed. Knowing that you were ransomed, knowing you were bought again into a new family. You were dead and now you're alive in this family. That supports that claim. That call is supported by the gospel. And then the other call in verse 22, love one another. That command is supported by the gospel in verses 22 or verses 23 through 25. He uses all those verses to come and support that command. And so right here, I could have just started here and we would have been done a lot quicker. This is 1 Peter chapter, chapter 1, verses 15 through 25. This is it right here. God is holy, you are holy. Act like it in your relationship with him and your relationship with others. And if you were tempted to think it's by your own strength, both of those calls are strengthened by verses and reminders of the gospel. I could stand here for hours. No, Brandon's like, he's standing up now, so he's telling me it's time. Guys, we have to sit and rest in this. And as the rest of the book goes on, Peter's about to start to give us some calls in our actions. And every single call he gives, I want you, as you read it, as we teach about it, I want you to go back to these truths of the gospel. There's a reason why Peter spends so much time here. Because he says, this is the foundation. And every time we teach in the next few weeks about, hey, you need to do this. Peter's saying, do this. God's saying, act like this. That's good. But let us remember it's coming from this foundation. And that gives us the freedom to do it. And to walk in it. So with that said, let me pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your love and your mercy that you are our father. I pray that you would help us to see that you are good. And to see that your blood has made us good in standing with you. And so God, I just ask that you would help us to see your goodness. And then would you lead us in application in our life? Help us not to run away from the gospel, but help us to stand on the gospel and let that be the source that we act, that we live, that we walk. And I pray that we would love you and fear you, that we would take time to study what that means, and we will walk in right relationship with you because you bought that for us. I also pray that you would help us to think about and to study what does it mean? How do I apply to my life? Where are areas that I can love others in the body? Are there areas I need to forgive? repent, restore, would you lead us in that as well? And I just pray that you would remind us each and every day of the gospel. Jesus, in your name I pray, amen. And so with that said, we're going to go into a time of worship. And typically we have a time of response. But I think I went a little long, so we will, um, I encourage you though, not to leave it here. But I want you to think about it. And pray about it as we go forward throughout this week in your community groups, as you're reading this passage in your own time. I encourage you to be thinking about these applications. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Take time to think about that and to respond to Christ and to other believers. Think through that. What does it mean to love one another? And let's think through that and apply that and let's respond in our lives. And then what does it mean that we are born again, that we are ransomed? that we are his children, and how does that affect our lives? So let's think through all these things. And then as we think through these things now, throughout this next week, throughout this year, let's worship him. So let's worship him now.